my activism does not look like everyone else's and it shouldn't because we need different people to do different things. Welcome to Dear Culture, the podcast that gives you the news you can trust for the culture. I'm your co-host, Jerry and Keith Gaynor, Managing Editor at The Grio. And I'm your co-host, Shauna Pinnock, Social Media Director at The Grio. And this week we're asking, Dear Culture, how do we win in the country we built? So Shauna, before we get into what is a very important episode, tell me what's on your mind this week? Um, a few weeks ago, uh, Justin Bieber, decided to unveil a, a new look for his hair, which ironically, I think he's done like in 2014 and got dragged for it too. But like almost seven years to the date, Justin Bieber decided that he wanted to grow locks. Now, for those of you who are listening to this audio and not seeing me, there are there absolutely are air quotes around the word locks. Why? Because I have actual locks. No, no air quote there. White people, you cannot grow locks. Why? Because your hair does not naturally do that. In fact, the amount of filthy unwashing you have to do, like the lack of washing of your hair that you have to do and the gunk that you have to put in your hair for it to even look somewhat reminiscent of a lock. Oh my gosh. But you know, Justin Bieber wanted to look like uh, Angelica from the Rugrats, her Cynthia doll with his hair all over the place. You know exactly what I'm talking about. But you know what? This is not really about Justin Bieber. What this is about. I had, uh, you know, we here at The Grill, we do this thing every Wednesday called The Grill Top 3. If you're on Snapchat, you can catch all the episodes there. Cool. I recorded a nice little segment about Justin's hair and, you know, how he looks crazy. He looks like a filthy bohemian who doesn't wash his legs. So talked about it, had a little laugh, fine. Fast forward like a couple weeks behind that. And I go to my Twitter and in my DMs, there is a white man with locks who I've never seen this man, heard this man, didn't know this man existed. And he felt it necessary to jump, hip hop, skip cartwheel into my DMs to let me know how he felt. Um, and he wrote, quote, I just watched your little Snapchat insert on the Grio about Justin Bieber's locks. You can't, mind you, there's not a period, a comma, nothing in here. So I'm adding my own grammatical you know, situation. Uh, you can't speak for black people everywhere. Trust me, I get more compliments about my hair from all walks of life, but especially black people in my city to each their own in life. Try spending more time uniting each other instead of dividing each other. I've had my dreadlocks for 10 years now and I wouldn't cut them for, in, in capital letters, anybody. I hope you have a blessed day. Then he proceeds to send me a link to some random article and he's like, just a little article hopefully will open your mind to get you out of the cultural appropriation mindset. I love everyone. Oh, this is all in, in capital letters now. I love everyone regardless of race. And then his final message was stay beautiful queen. Now, um, for our listeners, if you couldn't already tell, I'm a very spicy person and I'm the last person to bring smoke to because I'm gonna give you the smoke that, that you want. I'm gonna give it what you're looking for. So I responded back uh, with a video of Stephen A. Smith going, <laughs> we don't care. I just wanna tell you right now, <laughs> we don't care. And then I proceeded to say, I don't care about your hair. I don't care that you exist. You're the one in my inbox getting out your feelings about the rat's nest on your head that is not meant to grow in the way that it does. If you choose to look like a filthy bohemian who doesn't wash your legs, that is your decision and your journey. My decision and my journey is that you and your white brethren look ridiculous. We will walk our journey separately. I suggest you stop giving the opinions of women you don't know, who don't know you even draw breath, so much power over you. Focus on moisturizing your locks before Jesus comes back. Thank you for watching my quote unquote little Snapchat insert. I will continue to stay beautiful. Peace be to you, beloved. I don't like the majority of you, okay? Now there's a reason why. Because you do crap like this. I don't know that man existed. I didn't, I didn't need to know that man existed. I don't care about y'all's hair in the grand scheme of things. I am going to tell you though, that you look ridiculous. I am going to say you look filthy. Case in point, one of my favorite wrestlers in like life, his name is Bray Wyatt. 
love him. He goes by The Fiend. He's in WWE, all these other things. He has locks. And you know what? He looks filthy. Love him. Love his filthy self. But he looks dirty. Livy cuts it. Great. Because you shouldn't have had him in the first place. But do whatever you want to do. It's just my opinion. It is what it is. Do not find yourself in my DMs, in my inbox, in my periphery, talking that cash-ish to me about something that I done said. Listen, I don't care. I don't care. I said what I said, and I will always say what I say because I choose my words very carefully. I don't, I very rarely do I misspeak. Very rarely. I say what I say, and I say it for a reason. You ain't going, and you can't beat me, so you're not going to make me change my mind. You can't whoop my ass. I'm sorry, you can't. And if you try to, <laughs> we can get digital, buddy. We can because like, <laughs> I keep that thing on me. But anyway, Ooh, uh, it's hot in here. Ooh, it's getting a little <laughs> hot in here. I say all this to say uh, why you know bullying can sometimes work. Justin Bieber cut them damn things off his head today. I love to see it. What about you, Jared? <laughs> well, well, wow, wow. Uh, well, from white people and and dreadlocks to white Republicans stalling civil rights for black people. Um, what's on my mind this week is, uh, obviously we're, we're talking about George Floyd. It's the one year anniversary of his murder. And President Biden asked Congress to deliver the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act to his desk by the one year anniversary, May 25th. That has not happened, it is not going to happen. And according to a high ranking anonymous Democratic source uh, who told our very own White House correspondent, April Ryan, that the real reason why there is such a stall on this on this bill uh, is not because solely because of negotiations between Republican Senator from South Carolina, Tim Scott, and uh, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker and Congresswoman Karen Bass. It's also because Republicans apparently are trying to get buy-in from law enforcement organizations and agencies before they co-sign this bill. Because oh. we all know that Republicans love the police. They've always been, we're a pro-police. They try to uh, pose, they, they try to position Democrats as anti-police. They've called Black Lives Matter uh, protesters, uh, terrorist groups, at least some far-right conservative personalities have. And it's not surprising to me, but yet it is very troubling to me that they are holding a legislation that would essentially make it easier for black people, brown people, anyone who might face police brutality to seek justice in the court of law. There is this thing called qualified, qualified immunity that protects police officers um, in most instances where there is uh, a, a force or murder or death. And it really frustrates me because Republicans are so pro-police when it comes to Black Lives Matter. But when it came to the January 6th insurrection where a Capitol police officer was killed and another committed suicide and countless others were injured, they were silent. We are now in the midst of another bill on the, that's being placed on the floor in Congress about a commission to study what happened on January 6th. And Republicans are not in support of this commission. And while they are not quite clear what why that is, some of them say that it's because they, they feel like Democrats are, are politicizing what happened on January 6th. If you ask me, I think Republicans are just simply scared of Trump's base because we all know that the people who stormed the Capitol were pro-Trump, pro-white nationalist people who wanted to overthrow the government to stop the electoral college from being officially counted that would then make President Joe Biden officially president. And so I do not believe that Republicans are negotiating this bill in good faith. They do not want to see actual police reform despite what some might say publicly because privately they are also allegedly, allegedly, I'm not gonna, this is just a source, uh, that they might be trying to figure out a way to uh, campaign against Democrats in 2022 for the midterm elections uh, and trying to use this bill and their and Democrats position on policing against them. And so it's very frustrating. I think people really need to be paying attention to what's happening in Washington because like always the Republican party are two-faced. 
they they present like they care and that they that they care about the loss of George Floyd and his family and they want to see justice and that they are in agreement that there needs to be some level of police reform. But here we are with a bill before them and it's being stalled because they want to hear uh, law enforcement say that it's okay for them to support as if law enforcement are the boss of the Republican Party. And this is not the first time we've seen this because when it comes to uh, gun reform, they mm. often they often uh, cow to uh, the NRA because they're so scared of, of turning on these organizations and these groups that pump a lot of money into their campaigns. And so when they're running for office and re-election, they get a lot of money from unions, from police unions, from the NRA, from gun rights organizations, second amendment uh, rights organizations. Um, and look, Republicans are entitled to believe what they want to believe, but when it comes to being Black in America, this is a, an emergency. This is an epidemic, and really, it's it's like a form of genocide, genocide that we're seeing because Black and brown people are continuously still being killed and murdered every single day, and there seems to be no pathway to justice for the families of these victims and for the victims themselves. And enough is enough. It's time for action. And I think that we need to continue to protest on the one year anniversary of George Floyd. While we want to celebrate his life and we want to acknowledge that there has been um, some type of watershed moment in the, in the guilty verdict of Derek Chauvin, we have to also recognize that this does not change the actual problem, that there is still a lot to protest and we can't let off from our, from our activism. It's been one year since we all saw the video that shook the nation. We're recording this episode on the one year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, whose death sparked global outrage, protests and calls for justice. Even though state sanctioned violence against black Americans is nothing new, many said this time things felt different. Yeah, gee, we even saw major corporations and brands, even Hollywood releasing statements and announcing plans to do better and be better. <coughs> um, just a few weeks ago, President Joe Biden in his first State of the Union address called on Congress to enact a police reform policy named for George Floyd and aimed at eradicating black lives being ended by senseless police violence and brutality. Last summer's protests also amplified leaders of the movement, including Tamika Mallory, who joins us today to talk about her new book, State of Emergency, How We Win in the Country We Built. Yeah, but before we even get into our conversation with Tamika, I'm so excited. Uh, you know, let's just kind of jump into a little bit of things from the show, G. I'll let you start first. So, Shauna, I want to first talk about the moment that we saw the video of George Floyd's murder. I know for me on May 25th of 2020, I was in complete shock. And it wasn't because it was the first time I had saw a black life be killed before our very eyes caught on video. I think it was because at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, where here at the Grio, we were reporting countless and countless black people dying disproportionately from this virus and still trying to make sense of this virus while we're all um, sheltered in place in our homes. And here we see on a day that is usually a celebration, especially for black people on Memorial Day, we see a white police officer, Derek Chauvin, with his knee on his neck for over nine minutes. Um, and saying that even now I get goosebumps because it just, it was like, he treated him like an animal. Uh, I'm actually getting emotional right now. I, I didn't expect that. Um, but I want to ask you, Shauna, what, was, what were your feelings and what were your thoughts during that moment when you saw that video and when it first uh, went viral? We here at The Grill, we were still very heavily covering Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor. Um, you know, we are in the thick of the pandemic. You know, this is at the point in time where, hell, if you want to go to the supermarket, expect it's going to be a three-hour trip because, you, you know, they're not letting more than like 50 people in the store at a time. It was just a very stressful time. And I remember waking up that morning and um, one of our, uh, I, I, I was gonna, I had already been stressed in like the week before I had like a mental like break. <laughs> I was incredibly stressed um, and was crying. 
And I remember like distinctly, I was crying about Brianna Taylor and our boss, Todd, you know, told me to take a few days off, great. And uh, when the George news broke, I had actually, I think maybe it was like my first or second day back <laughs> at work. Um, and one of our, uh, one, one of the folks on my team, Garrett, he's like, another black man, you know, killed by cops. He's like, did you see the video? And I'm like, I can't, I'm not watching any of that. Um, and the reason why is because I distinctly remember having to watch uh, uh, Eric Garner, you know, here in New York, um, NYPD out here choking this man out for loose cigarettes, you know, and everything else. And I remember, and, I, and that's how I can't breathe <laughs> was born. Um, and I remember how um, the emotional toll that video took on me. I probably didn't watch anything. I probably don't watch like the, the George Floyd video in totality until maybe October. And I, and I, and I know it was before the election. That's, <laughs> that's all I remember. I just, I remember it was before the election. So maybe October. Um, and I just remember feeling so angry yet again, as impactful as that was, I think I, we all knew there was going to be someone else just like him. The constant genocide that we have to be witness to. And let's also be very clear. And this is where I kind of get pissed off with like mainstream media in general. And I recognize that yes, we work in the news and certain things have to be seen, but I'm very, I am astutely aware the disregard and the straight up like <laughs> just disrespect to our black bodies it is trauma porn and it's something that mainstream media has no problem showing repeatedly over and over and over. Like I'm genuinely curious to see if decades down the line, if there's going to be like research on how these images, these constant images, these constant things that we as black folks are forced to see as we're seeing, you know, again, our black bodies being just disregarded. Is there gonna, like, is there gonna be some kind of research about the trauma that we have to be dealing with? Like it has, it has, like, I'm like mentally, we have to be messed up. Like this is, me this is mental warfare the weeks after George Floyd and the protests that happened and living here in New York City. And I know so many friends and family in other cities who are like, yo, are y'all having fireworks on your block too? And I'm talking about like in Philly, in Boston, in Minneapolis, in LA, like here in New York City, in, in the Bronx, in Queens, in, in Brooklyn. And there was like, all of a sudden, fireworks every single night i'm talking like it would start up around like say 10 o'clock at night and then we're like kind of maybe die down and then it comes back again at midnight then kind of maybe die down then 1 30 boom dies down 3 30 boom and i'm like i know this ain't negroes out here like lighting up these fireworks bro it's the it's the cops it's the feds i I'm gonna put my, my tinfoil hat on. That's my conspiracy theory. They were doing some guerrilla warfare-ish to us. I know they were, I know they were, and you will never convince me otherwise. But yeah, Steve, what about you? <laughs> I think it's really important that we recognize that George Floyd was the catalyst, but it was a moment of being fed up because he wasn't the first and he's not, he wasn't the last. Um, but we did see great change. We saw, I just, I was actually really surprised to see the amount of white people and non-black people in America and across the globe protesting for black lives specifically. Uh, and we no, saw- we the Amish. <laughs> the <laughs> yes, the Amish, everyone, everyone you could possibly think of. And, and we saw um, more outcries for specifically calling out the injustice against black women and trans women and LGBTQ plus people and that all black lives matter and not just black men because black men might be um, more prone to police violence and death, but they're not the only ones. 
but it was also very interesting, interesting to see the ways in which white people seemingly um, stepped up or spoke out more. We saw uh, so many countless banks and uh, white corporate America institutions pledging to give millions of dollars to um, black organizations and to um, to organizations that that provide support to black America to try to what they see as closing that economic gap. And we saw record numbers of philanthropic funds being given to HBCUs. I've never heard HBCU mentioned so much in my oh, life what? in the past year. And as a graduate of Morehouse College, I know you are a graduate of Spelman College. Um, I was, um, you know, I was happy to hear it and see it. Um, but with all of this, I can't help but be a little bit pessimistic because I think okay, well, we're in the height of, um, of national protest, global protest, but will this continue uh, a year from now? Here we are a year from now, May 25th, 2021, and um, we're still having those conversations, but it's not enough. I think that it's more than just simply saying you're going to do something. And quite honestly, it's not just, I don't wanna see checks just written from uh, corporate America. I wanna see a check written from the US government. And I want to talk about reparations and, you know, we're coming up on the 100 year anniversary of the Tulsa massacre. Like there's so much more to talk about in terms of, 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 of righting the wrongs of, of white supremacy. And, but I, I am happy to see us talking more about the removal of Confederate monuments. You know, we saw Aunt Jemima, who would have ever thought Aunt Jemima, the, 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 the <laughs> this image that has been in all of our homes for decades being removed and and the George Floyd momentum did that and you have to you know give some credit to um, these efforts to to undo what has been done in this country but racism is not going to be erased with a few checks um, we have to continue to have real conversations about race we're now seeing a movement uh, against even teaching, the truth about race and racism in classrooms, because I, because we know that white America is very much scared of what the impact of knowledge can do to not just little black and brown kids, but all kids that we, that we stop the indoctrination of white supremacy. What would that mean for America? And I think that they're scared of what we are, what we've been fighting for, which is inclusion, which means that white people will lose some of that economic uh, power that they have. They will have, they will lose some of that social and political power and they have to share, share the wealth, share the power. And they don't want to see that. And so we're seeing a, a movement right before our eyes, not just in the fringes of the internet uh, with white nationalists in these, you know, the dark web, but also elected officials in Congress. Um, and so I'm, 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 I'm grateful to see us um, having a turning point in America, but we have a long way to go. Um, and I really want to emphasize that. Another PSA, white people, do me a favor. When this happens again, because it will, quite frankly, um, stop calling your black friends, trying to make them do more emotional labor because of your white guilt. Go talk to your white family and friends. Go fix that. Y'all should be protesting. Y'all should be on the front lines protecting the black and brown people behind you because you know what? The police ain't about to, the police ain't gonna whoop your ass. They gonna whoop us. So go ahead and form a nice little chain around us and use your white bodies to protect us. That is what you can do. Don't call me. Don't text me. Don't add me to the group chat. Don't ask me who you could donate to. Don't ask me what you should be doing. Don't, don't want to sit up here and discuss with me the latest episode of Grey's Anatomy and Station 19 because they've been doing what, and this is us, because they've been doing wonderful writing covering all of this. Don't ask me nothing. The emotional labor of Black folks, we are just trying to keep ourselves sane in that moment. Find your, do your work, period. Do your work and leave the rest of us alone. That's all I got, <laughs>
Even if you're just getting to know Tamika Mallory's name and voice, she's no stranger to activism and advocating for justice and equality for Black folks. She is the co-founder of the social justice organization Until Freedom, served as the co-chair of the Women's March on Washington, and was the youngest ever executive director of the National Action Network. And of course, we can't forget the name dropped by the Beyonce Knowles Carter, okay? Beyonce Giselle Knowles Carter. <laughs> we could go on and on. And so Tamika is joining us today to talk about her new book, State of Emergency, How We Win in the Country We Built. Tamika, thank you so much for joining us. We, uh, you don't have, you, I'm standing right now. This is a, this is fangirl. <laughs> oh, welcome. Thank you all so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to be with the griot always. Um, a place where I feel like I can come and, and really have great dialogue and make sure that um, the narratives that are out there about our communities, that we get it straight. So, you know, I think, I, you know, and, and sometimes I read stuff about me on the Grio and I say, that ain't true, but there's always uh, someone to call and someone who picks up the phone and, and helps to make sure that there's fair and balanced news. So I appreciate you. Uh, so just to get us started, you know, obvious question, and I know you already kind of touch on this in your book, but how do we win in this country that we built? Well, first of all, it's going to take a whole hell of a lot of work. It's been work um, and there will be more. And I think that, um, you know, obviously when we look back over history, um, there have been moments where we have made progress and, you know, I don't want us to be in a situation where there's so much despair and it feels so heavy because we still see many of the issues that we've been fighting for years, these challenges that still exist. Uh, but I don't want us to be in a place where we don't understand that there has of course been progress. When you think about even HBCUs and the opportunities that are being made for young black students that are coming out of these institutions, going on to be lawyers, to be doctors, um, you know, and to, to help and lead society. You think about black mayors across the country. You think about black DAs. You think about uh, black business leaders, black women becoming the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs, um, you, you know, they, where, where Black women are uh, the most educated. Of course, uh, there's so many areas where we definitely see progress. Um, but at the same time that we can uh, talk about those things and those great things, we also still see too many Black men going into prisons. We see too many Black men and women being killed. We see Black trans folks dying um, in, in, in just ridiculous numbers. Um, there's so many issues, our children not being proper, properly educated. And so because of that, we can often feel like we're not making progress. We're not getting any further. And I think we should always look back over where we have come, um, from where we have come, and then be able to, um, you know, really uh, make sure that we keep the emotional side of us us in, in check that the only thing, only way that we've ever went, won is to fight. That every time we put a strong fight in, we were able to get some pieces of the things that we want. And now we're in a place, I think, with having a new administration, having a different level of power um, within uh, the state, the, the legislature um, in general, and not, of course, these states we still have to work on, but in the federal level, um, we have more power. Now, I think is a moment when we have the ability to push. I don't think anyone is just going to give Black folks anything. Um, it's not politically expedient for them because everyone, unfortunately, and it is the thing that frustrates me so much about Democrats, is that they are always trying to make friends out of people across the aisle. And because that is, you know, somewhat the focus, too much of the focus, we miss out on opportunities to be 10 toes down and basically say, I said what I said, and this is exactly what I want. And I think that the only way we get um, and we're able to really force our electeds to utilize the power that we help them to get is that they need to know we're not just satisfied electing people, sending them to the White House or sending them to the Senate and then stepping back and, and hoping that things will happen. We did that with President Obama in many ways and I think it was a mistake 
um, that so many people, if you said anything about President Obama, uh, anything negative, Black folks, and, don't, and let's not talk about uh, church-going Black folks, would lose it. You know, he's the first Black president and he can't do everything. I think we have to do away with that. And in my book, State of Emergency, I talk so much about uh, those steps and the things that I think we need to be doing in this moment to push all those people who have power to really make change for us as Black people in this country. And that's a perfect transition for this question because obviously how we can win is also through policy. And you mentioned Biden and Democrats in Washington. And during his joint address to Congress, President Biden said that he wanted to see uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act sent to his desk by one year anniversary of his murder. And currently that bill is being negotiated in, in a bipartisan manner. And it seems like Democrats are willing to uh, push this legislation forward without um, including the piece that would eliminate the qualified immunity. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Do you think that Biden and Democrats will be able to push forward um, uh, meaningful, comprehensive police reform and what are your general thoughts about a more watered down version of that bill being sent to his desk? So first of all, just to put all of this in the proper context, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is good, but it is not as strong as it could be. Uh, the Movement for Black Lives has been talking about uh, something else called the Breathe Act. And I actually, uh, my politics are clearly more aligned with a more radical push forward, right? It is, it is, it encompasses many of the things that's in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, but it also includes other elements, things that um, are, are really shaping the country we want to live in, not just uh, talking about how to create small forms of, of reform. We are looking at systemic change, right? We wanna see overhauls. And so I bring that up to state that, um, and, and, and I, I don't wanna, I wanna make sure to say that I'm not speaking on behalf of Movement for Black Lives. I'm admiring the work that they have put into the BREATHE Act and, and, and also stating that I'm aligned with their efforts. Um, but you know, I'm bringing that up so that people will understand that the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act doesn't even go as far as we need it to go. So to take away something that is at the heart of the bill is actually, in my opinion, is disingenuous, especially at this far down the road. Um, the, and, and beyond that, moreover, which I, I hopefully we will talk about, but I'm just gonna bring it up, to have um, the whip of our Congress, right? Uh, Representative Clyburn, someone who is well-respected, someone who is a power broker to come out and say, you know, we don't have to have qualified immunity in the bill, especially after his particular branch of government passed the bill exactly as we wanted. So he had already done his job and to come back and step into negotiations with the Senate instead of using his power to unite with others and push the Senate to pass it, push um, Chuck Schumer to get the job done, right? And to be the support for Cory Booker and others who were trying to get the bill passed um, and, and, and of course, supporting qualified immunity. We know that because Cory Booker was one of the co-signers on the original bill. To me, these are the things that continuously happen where Black folks step into things and are used as a way to cover for, um, uh, for, for there to be uh, not just a water down of bills, because we've seen it in so many different areas, but it really it provides an opportunity for folks to give us just a little bit and not to take it the full way and to push and fight for us to get what it is that we deserve. Some will say, well, you, you know, uh, it's important for us to understand um, compromise and there's always going to be compromise. You're not gonna get everything you want. 
I think the position that we have to take in this moment is that we've compromised for far too long. This is a very, a, 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 a literally um, a situation where we're talking about being able to hold police officers financially responsible. Now, I know that there's nuances of that. And when you understand all the details of qualified immunity, it is not just cut and dry in that way. Of course, there's always another layer of protection. But the last thing, or at least we could, at least we could ensure that there are provisions that make police officers even more accountable if they harm someone in our community. And I think that it should have been left in a way that we we would be able to see clearly the Democrats like Joe Manchin, who vote like Republicans and don't stand with our communities, and the Republicans who were unwilling and, and, and unwilling to support the bill, but also willing to go the extra mile to try to break down the entire bill, of course, you know, excluding qualified immunity. But there are some that don't want the bill to pass at all. Why do we as Black people have to be the ones to stand? Stand in the gap to provide cover. That for me is what is frustrating in this moment. And I see that uh, Representative Clyburn has, you know, sort of tried to move away from that statement and, 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 and make sure that people know that he actually does stand with uh, the bill as it currently is, but the damage has already been done. We're now starting to see the, uh, the, the efforts uh, become less and less potent, if you will, in terms of making sure that we get a bill passed in the right way. I know I said a whole lot, but I needed that couch to lay on and to, to, to talk about all of my troubles. So thank you so much for allowing me to really finish my thought. No, and that is such an amazing point. Like Jaren and I were just talking about, uh, you know, prior to even recording the show, I'm like, we're sick and tired of like the pussyfooting around. Like, why is it that at any time when it comes to black people, black things, black culture, black, black, you know, anything that has to deal with the protection of black people, we are the ones who have to compromise. We are the ones who's like, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll just get a little bit here. I'm sorry, not in this country that we built, as you say so in your book. <laughs> so um, I guess I kind of want to transition into just the whole idea of activism right now in this moment. What does that look like to you? And what does activism just mean in this moment? And you know what? I want to go back to one more point on that. <laughs> then I'll go to activism. And I think that a lot of people say, well, we have to vote. And, and I'm one of those people who believes that if you, and this is a part of the activism conversation, I believe that if you protest and you don't vote and you don't push for policy, you're only doing half of the job, right? So I think it goes the full way. But I'm also, as a person who's out here trying to get people registered, trying to get people to the polls, um, I spent three and a half months on the road, living literally from city to city, trying to go into or going into communities. We didn't try, we went into communities that are obviously dealing with um, the absolute most abuse and harm, right? Um, we, we went to places that people don't go, their doors hardly ever get knocked on because they are seen as low propensity voters. Uh, these, are, these are people who have been cast out by the system and they are not dependent upon to win elections. And we went out to tell them you are exactly the key that we need to open in the lock to making sure that we gain power. Well, the issue with that is that then I go back to them and say, we did all of this. We turned Georgia blue. People went to fight to get these, uh, these, these two Senate seats. And yet and still, we come back and say, well, we may not be able to pass this legislation. It's like, well, hold on. The whole thing that you sold us in order to get us to go to the polls was that we were going to have some increased level of power. But instead, it seems that we're in the same position because we also have individuals who again, vote like uh, Republicans that is giving Republicans more power and they're supposed to be Democrats. So I think we also, we have to understand as an activist in keeping with uh, the question that I'm trying to weave the two things together, but in keeping with that, I think what we have to also understand is now, when you look at a place like West Virginia, where um, uh, Joe Manchin lives and, and where, he, uh, where he is a Senator, his local district, 
Um, I think we have to look at that and say, okay, how do we go in? Not to say we abandon the whole process because we're not able to get exactly what we want in this moment. No, we have to be strategic in looking into West Virginia and figuring out who is there, um, who are the, and I know a lot of people say, well, I don't think our people live there. Well, actually they are, because they are on my social media and they're telling me every day that they're in West Virginia, but they need help organizing. There are organizers that are doing great work locally and they need more support and more awareness. And what we also know is that there are more white folks who are starting to see our movement as important and they want to join. And so I think as an activist in this moment, it's not, for me, it's not about us turning off the lights and just saying to hell with this administration, um, you know, it's not working out. It's about the fact that we've always had to fight, as I said in the beginning, when we talk about how we win, we've always had to fight, but we need to be strategic in what we're fighting and how we're sort of setting up and stacking up the chips to be able to push back in a way um, where we can actually uh, make a difference instead of us sort of spinning our wheels just arguing with each other because that's what we like to do too often. We ought to be focusing on coming together and using the full power of the activist body, if you will, to push from different points, not doing everything the same way, because that to me is not what activism means, that all of us are doing things exactly the same, that we're perfect, that we can't make mistakes. It means that we're humans, but we're humans who care about our people and we can come together and make sure that our force is so powerful that it cannot be ignored. Mm -hmm. And Tamika, in your book, State of Emergency, uh, you have forwards from activist Angela Davis and activist and musician Cardi B. And I love reading their forwards because they're, they're speaking to each other primarily. Um, and in particular, Cardi B kind of questions, poses the question, you know, is there room or space for me in this movement? Because I might not say or do the right things all the time. And I love Angela's uh, uh, reaction to her her forward. Uh, one, why did you decide to choose these two women, these two activists um, for the forwards for your book? But then also uh, speaking to Cardi B as an activist, she is a person of culture. And I wanted to ask you, how does culture shape uh, the movement? Yeah, so I thank you for that question because there are some people who seem to be confused. But I, I, I saw a lady um, in fact, I, this young lady is from Louisville, Kentucky. She is the president of the Urban League chapter there. Her name is Sadiqa Reynolds. And there were folks on my page who were going crazy when I first announced the, the forward of the book, Cardi B, Angela Davis, Dr. Davis. And they were like, why would you put those two people together? And, you know, Cardi, you know, she's, she's not an activist or a social justice leader. And I don't get it. You know, I, you know, I like her music, but I don't see her in this space, which is problematic in and of itself. And this woman, Miss Reynolds, wrote on my page, if you don't get the combination of Dr. Davis and Cardi B being together, then I don't want to be your friend. Because then you, you're missing a, a whole point. That's exactly why I put them together, because they are not likely folks to sit down at the table and work on strategies for, you know, healing and, and, and wellness for Black people. That's not, they're not likely, but that doesn't mean it has not happened throughout history. And so, Jaren, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you talked about it. It's clear that you really read the forward um, because in, in, in this moment where they're speaking to each other in the book, Dr. Davis begins to talk about her relationship with Nina Simone, where Nina Simone felt some of the same things that Cardi feels. I don't know all the words. I don't speak the, the right way. I don't have, you know, all the lexicon for the movement, but I care and I want to speak out. And you know the story. I, we're not going to tell too much because we want people to go and pick up the book. But yes. um, the response that Angela Davis has for Cardi lets me know that this is not new, right? Where activists, organizers, leaders were also connected to those in pop culture. Just thinking about um, the thinking about Malcolm X and how close he was to Muhammad Ali. Um, there's always been throughout history, even if you think about Reverend Sharpton and his relationship to James Brown, there's always been a relationship between 
our leaders and our entertainers because the entertainers are able to translate a message to the masses that sometimes the leaders are not able to do. And when I think about, and, and, and just on a personal note, which has been driving people crazy, when I think about Cardi B and Dr. Davis, I feel like that's me. That's who I am. And most of the Black women that I know, I'm not saying all the Black women, I don't know about you, maybe it's not you, but I know for me, most of my friends and my family members, they live somewhere in that cross-section as well, that we like our entertainment, we like to twerk, we like to have a good time, but we also are grounded in some principles that, that leads us to fight um, for, for our people and, and to be positive influences in society. And I think that's what Cardi um, is attempting to do in her life and what she's talking about in the forward. I, I put those two people together in the book intentionally so that when people pick up State of Emergency, when they get this book, um, the janitor will feel as comfortable reading the material and figuring out his place in the movement as the pastor, that the doctor and the guy who's on the street corner can read this book and say, you know what, we, we all, we, we see different things, but we all see that there is a way forward. Um, I wanted to make sure that a mother and her teenage son could read the book together, that a girl who's in nursing school and a girl who's in the strip club could all read it together. And so that's why I connected culture with history um, and now story because Dr. Davis is still leading. And I put them together with the, with the hopes that this book will be one that is not just for one part of our, of our culture, but that it is actually covering many diverse groups of people being able to come to the table. That's so good. Oh my goodness, so awesome. Um, and so uh, we kind of have to transition a little bit. You know, of course, no movement of importance escapes criticism. Um, and I mean, even you, Tamika, you've you've gotten your share of criticism. I've seen how people try and jump on you, sis. <laughs> uh, you know, um, and I guess my question for you is, well, what do you say to those who may criticize or give pushback to folks like yourself or Patrice Cullors or DeRay, Sean King, hell, even Ben Crump, you know, who they'll say, you know, y'all are just commodifying black pain. Now, granted, I, I know your story and how you got started, but there's a lot of people that don't, you know what I mean? Right. And uh, I guess I would ask, you know, again, how, like, what do you say to those people and how has the criticism of the movement and of your work in particular, how has that affected how you organize and how you move? So, so, you know, critique is an interesting thing. I think we all need it. I think any person who claims to be a leader um, it will be critique and that we um, are, are better when we are able to listen to folks who may be um, a part of the movement, but don't necessarily agree with the ways in which we are approaching our work. Um, my issue is, the safety of conversations. So for instance, I have many black men that I talk to. I probably talk to more black men on a daily basis than I do black women, even though a lot of folks try to say that I am, you know, this, this super radical feminist that doesn't care about black men, right? Like that's, another, that's the other lie that I hear about myself all the time. But in fact, many of my advisors and people who I sit with and talk to on a regular basis about issues are black men. And I do that because I am a black woman and clearly my mother, my sister, my, you know, I've been influenced by black women so much that, and I live the experience that in many ways I carry, I embody the, the approach or the position of black women, but it helps me to reach across to my brothers and have dialogue with them. It helps me to sort of shape my thinking. And I'm grateful that most of the Black men around me and the Black men I talk to all the time have now uh, begun to understand the importance of them standing up for Black women as well. And so that for me is a, is a comfortable space, but it provides me with the safety to go to them and say either I don't know or for them to come to me and say there's something that you did or said that made me feel 
bad. It made me feel unprotected. It made me feel as though you were, um, you know, you were tossing black men out and only looking to, um, you know, uh, be supportive of black women. And, and I have to sit and wrestle with it. And sometimes we debate, we go back and forth. My, my problem is when I see it pop up on your YouTube page and it is mixed with the words that I'm a fraud and a sellout, mm. there's nothing else for us to discuss. Mm. The conversation is over. You go ahead and you do that. Um, that's, that's, your, that's, your, that's the, the, the perspective that you're coming from. I don't need that. Um, I don't deserve it. And, and to be quite honest, I don't have to deal with it. I'm in a situation and a position in my life where there are more people that are with me than those who are against me. And so if folks want to use me to create, to, to make sure that their platform or to, you know, get their YouTube likes and shares and uh, get their clickbait and all of that, I'm happy that I can provide an opportunity for you to make a few dollars. Like, Get you a couple dollars. I get it. Do what you got to do. You know, get your beef up your numbers by taking away all the people who come to my page all the time trying to tell me whatever I am or not. Now it seems like they've gone over there to you. And I'm happy y'all stay together because what I'm working on, while it's not perfect, I still know that my purpose is in front of me and I'm doing the best that I can do. And I've been doing it for a long time. And that's just what I've had to become comfortable with. You know, since I turned 40 um, and after a lot of different life-changing experiences have happened to me, I now have just sort of come into a place in my life where I just honestly don't give a damn. Like, talk all you want, you know, it, it, and, 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 I, and I say this all the time and it upsets some people. I never see these people outside where we can have these conversations in person. Even when I am outside and I do see some folks who have challenged me um, or they, it seems to me like they run to Facebook instead of having the conversation while they're looking at me right there on the street, which tells me that it's not coming from a genuine place. And, and, I, and I, you know, I would say to any um, young person or anybody who's like, damn, I'm watching, you know, where they, they, they constantly attack Tamika and maybe I don't want to get in the work. It's unfortunate, but the truth of the matter is that if you don't have haters, you ain't popping. So if you don't have people talking about you, then you're not really doing much. And, 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 that's, and, and the more visible you are, there are going to be people who don't agree. And, those, and some of those people won't agree with you for good reason. You know, it's not, it's, it doesn't mean that they're all wrong, but there's some of them are just pure haters and jealous. And you just have to keep focus, keep moving, and know that um, if you allow them to stop you, I personally would say that you're going against God's natural um, uh, plan and course of direction for your life. And so I'm definitely not going to battle God on behalf of some person that doesn't like me. I'm going to go with his plan because I feel like I've never been failed when walking in that direction. Yes, follow God. All right. <laughs> And, and lastly, Tamika, and this is a two-part question, uh, for those who want to get in a, join you and, and get involved in the movement, how can they organize and make change from where they are? Because maybe, maybe they don't want to show up at the protest. Maybe there are other ways that they can partake in activism. And also, what is the most important takeaway that you want people to get from reading your book, State of the Emergency? So I'll make that one answer as well. In this book, it talks about different ways that people can get involved. There, everyone is not going to be a frontliner. My activism does not look like everyone else's and it shouldn't because we need different people to do different things. We absolutely need folks that will stay home and help to raise funds so that when we're about to be arrested or when we are going into situations that could be dangerous, that there are funds for lawyers, for bail fees and for food. Cause I, I think, I don't know why, I, I don't think people when they see what we do every day, understand the full breadth of what it takes to be out there on the front line. We moved to Louisville, Kentucky for four months to support Breonna Taylor's family. Lived there um, and we had a, a home that we lived in. Um, we, 
um, had to eat every day, three times a day, maybe dessert at night. You know, we deserve that, right? You One would say that if you're going to be out there protesting in the heat, walking, marching, that you should be able to replenish. And so basically, um, you might be one who says, oh, I want to fund that. I, I don't, I'm not going to go to the protest, but I want to fund that. You could be someone who says, well, I don't have money, but I do have volunteer hours. And, you know, in my spare time, I learned a lot of accounting. And so perhaps I can use my accounting skills to support the movement, um, you know, give some free hours to do some bookkeeping. Uh, there's ways that everybody can get involved. The problem is that there is no one that should not be involved at all that there should be something that everyone is doing. And in this book, I talk about that, finding your passion. But before you even jump into a movement and you said what would be my takeaway from this book, and I think it's probably the most important part, before you jump into a movement, you need to actually have a movement that happens within you and within your own family, within on your jobs, in your own circles. Because if you can't deal with and address the bias, the discrimination, the racism, the sexism that is happening in your own circumference, when you leave this space and go into other spaces where people are working for change, you bring harm with you. You bring negative energy with you. And again, it's disingenuous because you haven't taken the time to challenge your mother on why she calls Black people niggers. You haven't dealt with that. You're not willing to get um, uh, to get uninvited from Christmas dinner, but you want to come and tell me how to lead the movement that I've been in all my life. I think that uh, that's probably the most important work that we can ever do. As I was talking to you, my son just arrived. He's on the other side of the camera. And I realized that the hardest work in my life is the relationship that I have with him. I've been able to help so many families in their time of need, but in many instances, my own child needed me to help him and I wasn't there. And that's why I dedicated this book to him because I always want him to know and to have this, to be able to say, my mom may have left. She may have been on the road all the time when I was young, but you know what? I know what she was doing. I know what she was doing. And so um, so state of emergency is really special to me and it's special because this big head boy who's over here, who's now 22 years old, the relationship between he and I is what I'm working on most at this point. So that when I show up in community, I'm showing up from a place that the inside is being cleaned out while I work on the outside. Oh, that is amazing. Well, Again, thank you so much, Tamika, for joining us. Congratulations on your new book. Um, our Dear Culture fam, go cop that book. Preferably, find a Black-owned bookstore to cop the book. You know, if, you, if you got that option, yes. if not, you know, hit up those other places. But, you know. You could go to Uncle, you could go to Uncle Bobby's, which is Mark Lamont Hill's bookstore yes. online. All the bookstores have, you know, for the most part, they have online portals. So you can find a local bookstore and purchase the book. I appreciate it. You can also go to TamikaDMallory.com. That's TamikaDMallory.com and get information about the virtual book tour. Tiffany Haddish is coming up. Michael Eric Dyson. We've already had Jeezy. Um, we've had uh, Taraji P. Henson. We had Andre Day. We had my son. We had to Portia Williams um, and so many others. And it's a mixture between um, folks who are thought leaders, grassroots activists, celebrities. Um, we try to, to make it in its, in its fullness. Everybody doesn't agree on all the issues. So it makes for great conversations. Van Jones just hosted um, one of the conversations you can go. It doesn't matter which city you live in. Um, the only reason why the cities are categorized by, um, you know, the different cities and states is sort of it's, it's categorized in that way is because we're partnering with local bookstores, but it's virtual so you can buy as many tickets or the least amount of tickets as you like. Yes, and, and shout out to our, our uh, White House correspondent, April Ryan. I believe she's also uh, part of this, right. <laughs> the, April, the, April, the virtual April, tour. 
I think April may be the host tonight. I think, I'm not sure, but I think she's the host tonight. It's been so many of them that I, I get, you know, a little bit stirred when I try to remember all the details. But if you go to TamikaDMallory.com, you can see all the information right there and join one of the dates. We have a real special person that just confirmed, but I got to wait before I announce it. So keep watching TamikaDMallory.com. And thanks a lot, guys. We want to remind our listeners to please support your local Black businesses and donate to your local organizations and religious institutions. The Black business that we're highlighting this week is Actively Black. You know, we here at the Dear Culture Podcast believe that health is wealth. And now when you're breaking a sweat, taking care of yourself and getting ready for the first summer after the pandemic, you can feel extra proud knowing that you're supporting a Black business at the same time. Actively Black was founded by Lanny Smith, who says he saw a void in representation and investment back into the communities whose culture creates the cool factor for those giant brands. Actively Black uses proceeds of their sales to invest and donate to healthier food options in Black communities, social justice initiatives, HBCU athletics, and mental health for Black folks. To support, head to activelyblack.com. The Griot has published a list of 50 plus Black businesses to support during the coronavirus pandemic. If you would like your business featured, please email us at info at That's G-R-I-O.com. And thank you for listening to Dear Culture. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcast at the Dear Culture podcast is brought to you by The Griot, executive produced by Blue Toulousma, and co-produced by Brenda Alexander, Antonio Thompson, and Taji Sr. Special thanks this week to Steve McCord.